Welcome to the Image Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Messman. In every episode, we explore the intersection of art and faith by talking to poets and writers, filmmakers, musicians, and visual artists who grapple with the mystery at the heart of religious experience. Lenicia Rouse Tinsley is an abstract artist based in Houston, Texas. She creates out of a desire to make the invisible landscapes within us known, using texture, form, and color to speak to life in ways words cannot. She is drawn to the negative spaces in life, those times of ambiguity and uncertainty, silence, and mystery. A graduate of Duke University Divinity School, Tinsley was a pastor's kid who became a pastor herself. Her father was the first cross-racial appointment in South Carolina in the United Methodist Church. She always found ways to bring the arts into her ministry, but she always wanted to be the one creating the art that offered new ways of seeing. She also wanted to be a mother. But then her infant daughter, AJ, died shortly after birth, and Tinsley faced a turning point. How was she going to survive this grief? And how could she imagine a life in which she wasn't merely surviving, but thriving? Tinsley left ministry to become a full-time visual artist, and the journey through grief remains a daily experience for her. But in her art practice, she's found a way, she says, to express what she feels so that it doesn't imprison her, but opens a door that others can enter. Tinsley and I sat down at the Glen Workshop, where she teaches mixed media and painting, to talk about the creation and experience of art as ways to lean into prayer. The artists who minister to her pain and remind her to feel joy, people like Mark Rothko, Cy Twombly, Alma Thomas, and the poet Mary Oliver and how the interdisciplinary collaboration that happens at the Glen inspires us. Tinsley works to make that kind of communal experience more accessible to more artists and people in her own community. She works with Project Curate in Houston as a spiritual director and consultant for the arts, and she's also the co-founder of the Imaginoir Group, an international alliance and think tank of black activists, artists, writers, scholars, and educators. So the first thing I wanted to ask you about is being a preacher's kid. <laughs> what was it like to grow up as a preacher's kid? In many ways, it was a gift. I kind of loved it. I, when I Growing up, I loved the church. As a kid, sometimes I'd sneak over to the church next door and be in the pulpit preaching. Um, I admired my dad. I loved the music of the church. I wanted to be there. As I got older <laughs> and began to notice the the eyes that were watching, the ways that in youth group I couldn't really be vulnerable Mm -hmm. and talk about things that were happening in my life because I was the preacher's kid and not wanting to do harm um, to my family, to my dad, who was a great dad, so there's nothing like I would tell him. But you know, you're just always mindful of... The judgment of people, Mm -hmm. yeah, and the eyes that are on you. Protective of your... Oh, yeah. And, too, it's always funny because I would get, are you the good preacher's kid or the bad preacher's kid? (laughs) And so growing up, too, there's always this pressure that I put upon myself to be the good one because I just didn't like the way people asked me the question or looked. Mm -hmm. But it, it has formed and shaped the person that I am, and I'm grateful for it. Um, But it was hard, the moving... Um, Our particular life together um, was unique in the fact that my dad was the first cross-racial appointment in South Carolina in the United Methodist Church, and it was back in the early 80s. Wow. And so from the second grade 
on, I lived pretty much in a predominantly white world. So white church, and if you're going to the church, then the parsonage is probably going to be in a predominantly white neighborhood. Um, and then the schools, and we were smarts, so and classes, I was the only one. You know, and all of these things that were part of my dad's call um, to be in a ministry at that time, he liked, he calls it, and he still does, a ministry of reconciliation, mm. racial reconciliation. And so being drawn into his call and having to bear some of the burden mm. of a call that was upon him but wasn't necessarily mine. Yeah, at times that was hard. So the added complication of being the only black child in a white community, in a white church. Yeah, and then also the added complication of um, being wrapped up in the call that required movement and change Mm -hmm. and I'm struggling with belonging, right? Because every move means you have to start over and make new friends and find your place in the order of things. Mm -hmm. And you became a preacher yourself. (laughs) You went to Duke Divinity. And what, what was that like? What was your ministry like, your experience in ministry and as a preacher? I did. Um, I was always one who wanted to be a singer, and I feared failure, um, and so that hindered me from pursuing in many ways. And then there was also this always this part of me that felt um, I was so affirmed in the church for my music, and I always felt like people in church are just really nice. <laughs> And I didn't always trust um, that. And so, but I was really affirmed and embraced for my gifts of leadership, Mm -hmm. of of speaking and leading in the church. And so I received a call into ministry when I was 16 at a youth camp. I remember it like it was yesterday, this really clear moment of saying, yes, I will follow Jesus. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I will follow through my service in the church and ministry, and I will go to divinity school, and I will do all of these things um, that felt really logical and good for me to do. And so ministry in and of itself was was good. Um, also a gift. It's formed and shaped the art that I do and the person that I am. Um, but it, too, was hard. I found myself constantly burning out. And I, and I say now it's because I was wearing clothes that just didn't really seem to fit me well, but was trying really hard to wear them. And um, Why do you think they didn't fit you well? Yeah, I mean, because I, I really feel like I was always meant to be an artist, a creative. And I would always find ways within ministry to bring in creativity and engagement with the arts. Um, but I wanted to be the one um, up at the mic with the guitar, singing these songs of my heart. Mm-hmm. And... Um, inviting people into um, a story, a feeling, and opening them up through art. I wanted to be the one behind the camera creating um, images that helped people to see um, differently. And words and preaching was not necessarily life-giving to me. There were other ways of singing and photography and um, art, visual arts, that fed me and gave me life. lost your baby girl. I'm so sorry. I was so sorry to learn that. AJ. AJ, yeah. Um, And I think you said that that was kind of a turning point for you in terms of deciding to live out maybe the crazy option for Mm -hmm. you. 
I remember reading that you have a quote in your studio maybe from your sister about doing the crazy thing. So I'd love to talk to you more about that, about how grief became a kind of pivotal deciding moment and embracing the artist that you are living into that life. So even before um, AJ entered into the world and um, died, I began to do some work mm -hmm. um, because I wanted to be a mother who was free yeah. um, and living fully so that I could help raise a daughter yeah. um, that would be free. Uh, so I knew there was work that I had to do. So I had already begun um, to okay. do some real work with a therapist, <laughs> uh, which is a good thing, yeah. um, especially for, for me. It was good. And so I began to do that work. And then when she, when I went into labor prematurely mm -hmm. and her lungs weren't fully developed yet, right, and she entered into this world and lived for um, a little more than two hours, my life paused. My heart broke and shattered in ways it had never broken shattered before. And then in ministry, it was not smooth sailing for me. Like I didn't live this life that was void from um, the pain and griefs and realities of this world, right? So I felt pain. My heart had broken before, but this was a new kind of breaking, right? Um, and so I was fortunate enough um, to be at a church that allowed me to take sabbatical for a little over a month mm -hmm. for healing, um, both physically, emotional, and spiritually, mm -hmm. to begin that journey of healing. And I remember, like it was, gosh, yesterday, that first night when I was in the, ho um, in the hospital room, the first night that I was in the hospital room with her, and I was alone. And the hospital was so compassionate to allow her body mm -hmm. to be there with me as long as I needed it to be. And Cleveth left, who is my partner, and I began to wail out to God. And it was the kind of like David Psalms kind of wailing, truthful, cussing. I was so angry and in pain. And, um, and I said some things, and part of my crying out was, and I'm going to need love to show up. Yeah. And I'm going to need it to show up in real tangible, like I can see, feel, embodied ways, right? Mm -hmm. And I will keep my eyes open and I will look for it, but I need it to show up. And so in requesting that, I also knew that prayer required me living into that prayer as well. And so I began to look for love in the first place is like, okay, how am I going to love myself as I live into this new normal? Mm -hmm. And part of that loving was to imagine, reimagine what life could look like. A life where I was not just surviving um, from day to day, but really thriving. And so in the midst of naming these things, I wrote, like, I am an artist. Mm -hmm. That's what I am. Mm -hmm. So what do I need to do to be that? So I was like, I want to get a studio downtown. I want to make art. I want to create things with my hands. My body can create. And, mm -hmm. and it was almost like a form of resistance as much as it was a acknowledgement of the essence, like who I am, right, yeah. and what I needed to do. So I started naming it. My sister had written this poem called Do the Crazy Thing. Mm -hmm. And it was written way before this happened. But um, during that season, that the, her words in that poem just kept coming back to me. It's like, what is my crazy thing? Yeah. <laughs> and it was that. Um, to really leave ministry eventually 
and to become a full-time visual artist, which I would never have imagined I would be doing. Another thing I read about that period, or maybe I heard it in your interview, was about you spending time in the Rothko Chapel in Houston, (laughs) where you live. But what was really struck me about that was that you would go to the Rothko Chapel and then you would go to the Cy Twombly Gallery and you talked about, I don't know, this. it, it probably wasn't a balance, but allowing yourself to grieve and feel pain, but then sort of insistent, insisting on hope and some kind of hopeful vision. I wondered if you might talk about that a little bit, about how those two spaces mm-hmm. might have been healing or challenging mm-hmm. during that time. That time was the first time I I lived in Houston for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. But that was my first time entering into the Rothko Chapel um, during that time. And um, people had told me for so long to go, and I had time, so I went. And I remember sitting there, and it felt familiar to me. It resonated deeply, his work. And I didn't know much about him, but his work, it encapsulated me just in, yeah, in this way that it kind of just like hugged me and it was like, I'm not alone in this. Um, And then the longer I would sit there, the longer I would be able to see glimpses of light and brushstroke marks, even in this really heavy purple black kind of painting. Mm. And then it just sparked my curiosity in ways, too, as an artist. But it ministered to my my pain in ways that it's just kind of beyond words. I struggle sometimes to articulate it. Um, But I I always say, too, that, gosh, I can't imagine going through what I went through if I did not know that love was real or what love could look like and, and be a person of hope and had experienced some ink of joy before. And so that knowledge and possibility as a part of my imagination that would lead me to walk a block to size gallery where it's flooded with light and color and sit in front of um, one of his pieces in particular that just is this giant massive work um, with all these like rolling colors and just sit there and be like, I don't quite feel that kind of joy right now, mm-hmm. but I long to feel it. So were you drawn to abstraction before that time, or did that play a role in helping to imagine how you might work? Hmm. I think I was always kind of drawn, not always. The work that I was doing, I was managing an art project with men and women living outdoors. Mm. And so in directing that project program, I was encountering all kinds of arts and my my eye was always drawn to abstract forms. Like it's, I tended to want to spend more time with abstraction than figurative pieces. But that encounter did awaken me to like abstract expressionism, Rothko mm-hmm. especially. Because then, and sitting there now, it just really ministered to me. I was like, I want to know more about this man. And then I heard of this movement that then I'm always following my curiosity that led me to more mm-hmm. artists and learning about this form that um, I was like, whoa, that just seems like where I want to go with my work. I think I'm like, yeah, I'd like to talk more about that, that process for you. There was another time that you mentioned reading poetry before you begin and almost practicing Lectio Divina 
before you head to the canvas. Tell me about that. Why, why poetry? What does that help unlock or motivate for you? Yeah, poetry for me, it's a gift in a number of ways. Um, one, poetry brings me to a place of silence that is really real for me and a place where I need to get to a lot of times in my work in order to honestly get out what's within. So it does that. Um, as a, a preacher's kid who often suppressed, learned to suppress some feelings and mind over emotion, mm-hmm. logic over emotion. Poetry helps me grow in my emotional acceptance. Mm-hmm. And I am grateful for that. They have just have a way of talking about the reality of the world and no word is wasted. Why do you think it's so important to get to a place of stillness before creating? For me, it's important because there's so much noise in this world. Mm -hmm. And I am a kind of human that is always paying attention Mm -hmm. to the world around me and feeling it deeply and is constantly thinking and longing for difference, you know, and imagining what's possible. And so when I get to the canvas, there's there's a real need for me to get to a place where I can just hear what is inside, um, to be honest to that. And so I kind of need to quiet out <laughs> mm-hmm. all of the things. Yeah, and I want the canvas to reflect part of who I am and the journey and experiences that I have in life that are all formed and shaped by the world around me. But to get there, I do need to to hear yeah. what's inside. Do you think that feeling of, needing to be right or do the right thing or be perfect. Is that a holdover from being a pastor or a preacher or a a preacher's kid or something that you have to work actively against? I mean, yes. Part of it's being a PK. Part of it is being a black woman who was immersed in a white dominated world where I did feel the pressure to have to be better than in order to have even a chance at some of the opportunity of, at opportunities that some of my colleagues um, had. And so my studio practice now is about living free and doing yeah. the work that's necessary, both mentally, um, the work, as well as the work itself to be free from those gazes and in their various forms, yeah. you know? Yeah. Because, you know, when I think about ministry, too, part of the burning out was always feeling kind of constrained and mm-hmm. constricted. And I, for so long, thought, like, oh, there's life in the boundaries, and so I want to live in those, and I want to create as many as I can. Oh, yes. But now I realize, no, life is really, like, I literally want less and less of those, and I want to figure out ways of creating more space for myself to be who I believe I am to be in this world, Mm -hmm. um, to see the holy in me and then to see the holy without me and make space for other people to fully be themselves in my presence and in the world whenever I have an opportunity to make space. Hi, I'm Megan Ritchie. Director of Marketing and Communications at Image. We love bringing you the Image Podcast. If you've appreciated the conversations we host here, 
best way you can help sustain this work is to become a subscriber. And if you're already a subscriber, we'd be so appreciative if you made a donation to our annual fall campaign. Your gift, big or small, is crucial for our continued work. To give, visit imagejournal.org slash donate2019. Thank you for your friendship. So would you tell me about a poem that inspired you to create? There's all these poems that I will create from. I typically begin and I sit with one at the beginning of a body of work, and then sometimes there are new ones that pop up as I'm going. This latest work that I did, I sat with a poem actually my sister wrote mm -hmm. um, about her experience of losing the the dream of having be, having a niece, AJ. And um, so I sat with her words. There's a, a poem called Separation by Merwin that I sat with um, for this particular collection. I love Mary Oliver's poem about the sunflower. Mm. Um, that's one that kept coming up recently in my work. I am reading um, works from Alice Walker this year. Um, her poetry <laughs> speaks to me. Um, but for this particular collection recently, it was... Sienna, Merwin, and Mary Oliver's sunflowers. Yeah. I love the sunflower um, and the thought of how it has to go through the dirt, right, to mm -hmm. become um, this beautiful, long, strong plant that leans into the light and opens up to it. And so that's, that's my flower. I'd love to hear more about your canon. That was how you, I think you described it last night. Tell me about the artists that are in your canon. You mentioned Alma Thomas. Yes. Yeah. And Helen Frankenthaler. I love seeing the photography of her in her studio at work. She allowed her body, yeah, just her body to be free to contort and move and mm -hmm. the way in which the movement and the paint kind of required. I loved her innovation, mm -hmm. which is, I think, another reason why I'm drawn to a lot of abstract expressionism specifically, mm -hmm. because it was so innovative, and each artist had their own particular style. <laughs> and so Helen, and what she was able to do with color and the layering and just the way she allowed the paint to be soaked into the canvas. Do you have a favorite? Yeah, I mean, I think I really like the mountain and the sea because I feel it. Every time I look at it, it, it reminds me of um, growing up as a kid in the mountains of South Carolina. Every summer, we'd spend time there, and my sister and I would always joke about um, I would have a mountain house, and then she would get a house by on the beach. Yeah. Alma Thomas, I absolutely love that woman. Um, she's one of my sheroes, you know, at 72, I believe. Um, after she retired of being an art teacher, she pursued her own art at 72, right? And she has work that is in all the spaces <laughs> that yeah. we can imagine. The White House, I think there's two of her pieces there, and I've encountered them in, you know, museums. I mean, Alma, she was, she's contributed a lot um, to the art world and the history. I like her use of color how um, Alma used abstraction and was always chasing um, beauty for her, that's what she would say. Like, she didn't want to paint about the pains of the world. Mm -hmm. She wanted to concentrate on the beauty. 
And so for her, her garden <laughs> was one of those beautiful spaces that inspired her work. She was fascinated with astrology and space and the fact that a man during her time walked on the moon, like that captured her imagination. She was really intrigued by Mars. And so a lot of her work um, for me is was free to, at a time where it seemed socially, there was a lot of pressure upon um, the black artists to create work that spoke to specifically to and directly to the black experience. I was like, I'm going to paint what I want. Like she painted from where she wanted to paint and almost gave us a, um, a future, like a vision of what's the future that I just feel in her work of just freedom. Every time I look at her work, I see freedom yeah. as well as just great skill. It's interesting what you said about the abstract expressionists, not just what ended up on the canvas, but how they had to learn their own way or wanted to learn their own way of even approaching the canvas and what the canvas was and what the tools were that you were going to use on that canvas. Oh, yeah. I mean, some of my favorites also in my canon are Ed Clark, mm -hmm. um, African-American man who um, received money from the GI Bill to um, go to Paris and study. Well, he took his money to go to Paris and study art, and he was a figurative painter before he got there and then embraced abstraction and was free in many ways to do so and realized he couldn't find a paintbrush that was large enough to paint the kind of strokes and the textures that he wanted on the canvas, and so he took a push broom, wow. right, and would push paint with this broom across the canvas, um, creating this fabulous texture, but the way in which the harmony of paints would blend together and his color choices, and but this innovative spirit. And then he also, which in his writings he would say he was the first one to take um, the canvas and distort the frame um, and challenge form, right? And say, no, a painting, and what a painting could be. Yeah. And so he would collage on the canvas that would break up the line of the rectangle or the square. He was really um, big for, in a lot of his pieces, of like the oval-shaped canvas, right? Mm -hmm. And saying, yeah, that a canvas doesn't have to be a square, um, perfect square or a rectangle to be a painting. Sam Gilliam was the same, who I also love, where he created the drape canvas, mm. um, where the canvas is almost, he would paint on these unprimed, um, like much like Helen, um, canvases on the floor and hanging and put pour paint, let it soak in, fold canvases to create these mono prints um, with the paints and then sculpt them on the wall or hanging from the ceiling. Yeah. Every time they're in a space, they are a new creation in some ways when they're shown. Um, there is a music and just, once again, their knowledge of the materials that they were using and willing to experiment and discover new possibilities. Yeah, this freedom and embodiment, that mixture. There are paintings like at the Art Institute of Chicago that when I go to Chicago, every time I go and I just sit in front of these works, what was coming out of Japan at that time. Mm -hmm. um, I love the work of Jeffrey Gibson, mm -hmm. who is an, an indigenous artist um, who's doing really some interesting things with form and color and his human, like drawing us deeper into the human condition through the sharing of his own stories and particularities um, and culture and ways that push me, all of these artists just push me to want to be a better artist and a more honest artist. To take my craft seriously, mm -hmm. to learn as much as I need to learn. Um, I, 
I am self-taught. And I, I say, like, I didn't go to school. Maybe that's what I should say, because there I've done workshops. You know, people mm-hmm. have taught me things along the way. But a lot of my own, like, I've had to shape my own curriculum. And I'm really intentional about that curriculum that I shape for myself to make sure that it is as expansive as I can possibly make it be. That's just because I believe there is wisdom and beauty and so much truth that we all, all people, have to teach and reveal to us in the world. of ideas that you get from people in other mediums. That's been one of the gifts of this week, too, is hearing so much from visual artists as a writer. And I tend to go to writing conferences. And I was really beginning to just feel deadened by that experience. Nothing against my colleagues, you know, but it's just needing to learn how to see again, as you were saying. Oh, yeah. And yeah. think of, possib- of what's possible. And I feel... Especially at such a time as this, um, in our particular cultural context, and um, I'm sure your listeners are all over the world, but just thinking about being an American um, right now, where I more than ever feel like, from in my lifetime, every generation has there, but in my life, I feel like there's this need for the imagination and for creativity mm-hmm. and for the voice of the artist to really speak and not be silent and to do the work to to see right and to hear so like the Glenn this week it's just been great to sit with people who see and hear the world the world and words and see images in a way that I just don't in my discipline like you were saying this Mm -hmm. cross-pollination and how it enriches Mm -hmm. the artist that I am and helps me do the work that I feel is so necessary Mm right now cultivating that the eye for joy in those small ways that we can find it because yeah artists need to speak but we can't speak if we're dead sometimes I struggle in um, talking about my particular story because I don't want to give this idea that the journey through grief is not one that um, is not a daily kind of fight um, for me yeah or that I don't get angry, mm-hmm. and not just angry at the loss of AJ, but just angry in life. But what I what I did make the conscious choice to do um, is not to allow that anger, that pain, that grief to imprison me, mm-hmm. but to through art I've found a way to. And it's freedom is an interesting word because, like I said, it's always still there, but I'm just not bound by those things and I found an outlet to express what I'm feeling in a way that invites people in and maybe opens them up um, Mm -hmm. and to new possibilities for themselves to think differently to see differently and that's the work that I want to do and so I'm really I'm grounded in the reality of just that joy and that sorrow that are constantly journeying with yeah. me in a part of my life. I would love to hear more about your involvement with Project Curate. Project Curate is an organization that is doing work to curate conversations around race, mm-hmm. 
um, and justice and equity and community and how we can be a be communities, institutions, um, organizations that are more equitable, inclusive, and just in this world. Yeah, and we do that through conversations. We do that through intentional like curriculum shaping and um, honest conversations, but also art is a part of the work that we do. And so my role is to help them think of ways in which people can encounter the art. Mm-hmm. Um, and so typically lead the groups through Visio Divina. So mm-hmm. thinking about artworks that we can introduce to the community and expand the visual canon of the folks who are part of Project Curate um, and then engage art in ways that um, slows them down and really helps them to get still and listen. It's great because I get to um, work with people like Jessica Davenport um, and Biko Mandela Gray to think of ways to um, expand who are the artists that we want to introduce to in our curriculum and to be a part of that canon, I guess, that we are yeah. shaping. So you work with Jessica and Biko to develop curriculum? I am one of the consultants okay. for thinking through, like, oh, they ask for art. When we're doing the curriculum studies, mm-hmm. then I typically do the opening where I'm okay. leading people through Visio Divina. I travel a lot, so the past two semesters I haven't really been able to be as involved as I mm-hmm. was initially. And is it mostly Houston-based? or It is mostly Houston-based, mm-hmm. though the consulting that we do is national and could okay. possibly be even international. So there's an executive team mm-hmm. who all have different roles, and we have three members that do consulting. Can you tell me a little bit about an experience you've had through giving one of those workshops? Typically, my workshops... Uh, So the table means a lot to me, the life that happens around the table. Mm -hmm. And so in my studio, I have a huge table that can host about 12 people, if I don't have a lot of my own work around it, at this table to create. And that was really important to me when I got the space, that I not only had a space where I could make art, but then invite other people in to make it. And so um, the church has been partnering with me to make it accessible because okay. it's important to me too that art is accessible because there's a lot of workshops happening but they're so expensive they're and the so money expensive. yeah and it becomes a luxury Let's again be real the Glen is a very <laughs> expensive space yes. to attend which is one reason I like to make it as accessible as I can in other ways mm-hmm. online yes a huge problem is that for an artist to have any sort of art experience or art community requires money. money and so um it's been great to imagine ways of creating quality art experiences that teach technique that open people up to that creativity well that I truly believe is within us all mm-hmm. and opening them up to possibilities where they can follow their curiosity and experiment and play so we I typically I, my, my workshops are open to people of all skill levels and it's fun just to see what happens when you just make space yeah you know for yeah. people to let out what's within them and to discover and surprise themselves. And so there's the light. I have some great attendees who are, have been to pretty much the majority of my workshops that I offer. They're there at the table. And just to see how people like awaken to their own, like, oh, yeah. maybe I am an artist. Yeah. I mean, even here at the Glen, there's a woman who came to one of my workshops and recently retired from her job and she's like realized like through spaces to create I am an artist and like she's here 
this yeah. week. And so it's just really fun to see how people, how that table experience participates in opening people up to new possibilities for their lives. And the table too, one, I'm in Houston, so it's the most diverse city. It's fun to see how my table, without any intentionality on our part, but the beauty of that table um, and the people from all walks of life who land there and this possibility for connection that just happens when you just make space and make it possible for people of all resource levels to be there. I feel super protective of our artists right now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. Just, we always needed art. God, do we need art. You've been listening to The Image Podcast. If you liked what you heard, leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps to spread the word. And please consider giving a gift of any size to our fundraising campaign. For more information on the Glenn Workshop or to subscribe to the print journal, please visit the Image website at www.imagejournal.org. There you can also learn more about all previous episodes of this podcast and find our show notes and links to resources we discussed in the interviews. The Image Podcast is produced by Cassidy Hall and our music is by Sister Sinjin. Join us again in two weeks for further exploration of art, faith, and mystery.